Welcome, ladies, germs, and people of all genders to the Ah Real Films podcast, where two siblings discuss horror films based on a theme. My name is Taylor, the serial killer, and my co-host is... Cutthroat Curtis the Leo. (laughs) I feel like you've used Cutthroat Curtis before. You can't reuse a name. I'm sorry. It was just because the first thing that came to my mind, I went with Leo because of one of the movies. I don't, you know, whatever. At least I didn't think about it like you did. Oh, okay. I see. You know, it's always, I realize about two seconds into recording that I haven't thought of a name, um, and then I panicked. Yeah. But... You panicked, anyway, you panicked quite severely that time. I, I did. See it I, all over your face. My eyes, I was like that emoji with like the really wide open eyes. Like, <laughs> And boop. here I am just so confident like that new emoji that looks kind of like drunk. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. With the one raised eyebrow? <laughs> exactly. And the drunk, yeah. the drunk face, basically. Yeah. Um, anyway, in case you are one of our listeners who doesn't read the title of the episode before you start listening. I assume that's all of you're, them. You're... Honestly, you guys are true fans. Um, today, we're going to be talking about horror movies that are based on crimes. So not necessarily based on a, uh, a true event, which we did um, a while ago. Gosh, I think that was probably a few I months ago. I totally can... forgot that we even did that, by the way. Yeah, if yeah. You, that was actually a really fun episode. We covered Nightmare on Elm Street and Wolf Creek. Yes. Uh, so you can go back a few weeks and listen to that one. But this one is based on crimes. Um I think both of them are still based on true events, so loosely. it's a fine distinction. Yeah, loosely. Yeah. Well, actually, yours more mine so is than mine. Very, sure. actually, very accurate, which I'll get into. But um, so I, I'm I'm the resident uh, true crime fan. I, I guess you like true crime too, but mm. I like I'm kind of obsessed with it. So I wanted to do another crime episode just because there are so many good horror films that are based on crimes. Um, or like crime events or whatever. So I wanted to get into that a little bit. But before we start talking crime horror films, Curtis, why don't you tell the listeners what you're drinking? Yeah, sure. Um, I am drinking. So it's it's nominally fall season. Uh, today it was 94 degrees in Tampa. So not quite there yet. But again, nominally fall season, which means one of my favorite things to do is be a basic Mitch and drink pumpkin spice or pumpkin flavored things today i um i've been drinking pumpkin coffee for a good month now uh, it's been a wonderful experiencing every morning today i am drinking pumpkin beer specifically tampa bay brewing company's gourds gone wild which <laughs> it, it's really good it is a 16 ounce can too which I'm, i hate myself for laughing that hard though <laughs> gourds gone wild girls gone wild um <laughs> Uh, it is a really great beer. Um, I would say it's at least top three in terms of my favorite pumpkin beer because for beer, I don't really like this. So for coffee, the sweeter the better. Pumpkin spice, I don't care if that's real pumpkin flavor. I don't care if it's just cinnamon and pumpkin spice. Spice, I am all about sweetness when it comes to coffee. With beer, I really appreciate beer that has more of that gourdy flavor. Um, and as you can expect from a beer entitled Gourds Gone Wild, uh, this has a lot of that pu- real pumpkin-y, less pumpkin spice, more pumpkin-y, like pulpy flavor. 
Um, I'm ra- I could ramble on about pumpkins for mm-hmm. quite a long time here. Uh, I'm not going to stop you. I'm really a, quite a big fan of uh, just another shout out, another uh, pumpkin flavored beer. Uh, Dogfish Heads uh, pump- Pumpkin Ale, I think is what it's called. Uh, that's a really great one as well. Um, so I'm definitely going to be checking that one out very, very soon. But if you are in a market, um, I believe t- I believe I have seen this in Tallahassee before. Um, but if you are in a market that has you know beer from Tampa that's not Cigar City, uh, definitely check this one out because it is really, really good. That's lit. Um, so our sister has of late been accusing us of being too similar. I guess she sees herself as... <laughs> The black sheep of the family. Um, Which, I've by the way, personally... I just think that you two are too similar, and I'm the black sheep out of all of you. And that's so you funny because I think you two are. Whole time, anytime and I, I think that's so funny because I think you two are really similar, and I'm the black sheep, but I guess I'm a middle child too, so I feel like I'm entitled to that opinion. But I say that because I too am drinking a pumpkin beer. Nice. Um, I'm drinking my. I'm I'm a basic bitch. You're a basic bitch. I'm a basic bitch. <laughs> Um, my actually my favorite pumpkin beer is the Blue Moon Harvest Pumpkin Wheat. It's I've honestly tried, good. It's honestly. I've good. tried, and I'll be fair. I've tried probably. I mean, I can't remember all the craft pumpkin beers. Like if I see a pumpkin beer at a brewery, I always try it. I've never. T- I really like the Blue Moon one, um, and it's really readily available. And so I drink it ever since I was twenty one. Of course, <laughs> uh, I drink it. <laughs> I drink it every fall. I just really enjoy it. So I cracked open a cold blue moon harvest pumpkin wheat, um, little peek behind the curtain. We had to record a little later tonight than I think I was originally planning on. So I sat back, watched some office. I've been downing these all night. So if I if I'm slurring my words a little bit, um, that's why I've had a lot of pumpkin beer. So you're I'm drinking gourds gone wild. You're a gourd gone wild. Is that what you're trying to say? It's a That's, good joke, right? Uh, yeah, I would have laughed harder, but I was drinking my beer. I was like, whew, finally done talking. I can chug this thing. Okay. Um, so let's get into it. I think on our last episode on Based on a True Crime or ba- Based... I think it was called Based on a True Story. Um, yes, not necessarily a crime. Because yes. my Nightmare on Elm Street was not based on a crime. It was just based on a story. But um, I don't know how much we got into uh, people's fascination with crime and i think that our fascination with crime horse movies and indeed our fascination with horror movies um kind of all stem from the same thing i actually found a uh mental floss like little listicle about like why why do we like true crime um and it you know it really ranges like runs the gamut a lot of people you know we were fascinated by the evil and the macabre a lot of people it helps them like to feel prepared if something similar were to happen to them um it also is you know we have a sense of like wow i'm really glad that's not happening to me um or like you have a sense of empathy like it, it makes people feel like kind of weirdly good that they feel bad for the people that it's kind of happening to um but especially a lot of true crime fans are women and so there's also been a lot of like uh research and and folks looking into why are women so fascinated with true crime because although on the whole more men engage in crime and are the victims of crime um especially with like in domestic violence cases it's it's women who are 
like really the fans of crime. So women are really kind of like driving this true crime, like renaissance that we're going through and, and kind of by extrapolation too, like a lot of women are now becoming fans of like horror films and stuff. Not that they weren't always, but like, I think women are becoming more visible as horror fans. So it's kind of like the, just like the perfect storm. I think true crime has a lot to like offer in terms of entertainment, but also in terms of feeling like you're, like doing something for yourself to kind of like prepare you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also extends, extends to crime horror movies because although it's not real, it's something that could happen. And I think we've talked about that on the show before, like horror movies that are fantastical and they're scary, but you kind of feel like, Oh, well this couldn't happen. Um, so like at the end of the day, you're like, well, I'm not that scared versus horror films where it's like, oh, shit, this could happen to me. And I think we kind of have both come to the consensus that it's the latter that are really the actual scary mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, I've, you know? I've said on a multiple occasions on this podcast that the films that, you know, um, I think there's a big difference between a film that kind of scares you in the moment, like a, uh, you know, like a conjuring, like your average um not your average, but your very typical horror film that you'll see in theaters. You'll get in the moment scared, but then maybe never feel scared about it ever again. Whereas in contrast, excuse me, um, the films that I'm really scared by are ones that, you know, we've talked about found footage films in the past where ones that kind of like blend the real with the kind of the fiction where you're kind of tricked into thinking, you know, maybe this is real. Um, you know, a lot of found footage films, fake snuff films, or as a matter of fact, um, films based on true crime. Anything to me, anything that can be real, that presents itself as real, even if there is a paranormal aspect in it, as some of these uh, found footage films are, or that are based on like real events or based on something that can occur in real life. Um, that's the kind of stuff that kind of you know, affects me on a little bit of a deeper level where I am thinking about it as I'm going to bed or I am thinking about it a few days later and I do want to discuss it a little bit more maybe with my girlfriend or, you know, with my friend or something. Like kind of go through, um, you know, go through the process. And the only other, the best example I can think of um, was, I think I mentioned this story on the podcast when I discussed this film on our top 10 list, but after watching Martyrs, which depicts like very realistic and brutal instances of violence, like I spent, you know, the most recent time I had watched it with friends and I spent about 20 minutes after the film just discussing it with them because even though I'd seen it before, I was like so affected by what was happening on the screen. And I think that kind of is the same thing with um, films that are based on like crime or true crime or real events or something like that you just want to like almost process what you're seeing because Mm -hmm. you know there's that real sense of danger associated with them the same in in a way that kind of um you know maybe a paranormal film or a more traditional typical film that you would see horror film that you would see in theaters now doesn't affect you in the same way yeah i totally agree and like another thing that i feel like kind of as the nexus between like true crime, which is documentaries and podcasts that like talk about the actual details of a case and like crime films, which are a fictionalized account. I am very entertained by reading about like real cases or or listening to podcasts about real cases. But I think what a crime film has to offer is that it presents pretty factual information or, 
or at least a narrative based on facts, but in a like kind of a more palatable and like entertaining way. Mm-hmm. And especially I think for my film, which is about a really complex multi-decades um, real life case when I've sat down to try to read about the case or listen to podcasts about the case, it's just not as entertaining as the film mm-hmm. that we're going to be talking about. And so it's kind of a way for me to like learn about things, but in a more entertaining way. Cause it's like, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, but it's like, I, I want to learn about stuff and I want to hear about stuff, but I don't always want to like kind of put in the extra mental work. So I think that that's something that crime films have to offer as well. Um, especially like before this advent of like true crime podcasts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there was like a real, I feel like there was a real span of like crime dramas and films in like the late nineties well, I mean, and like early 2000s. Just look at law and orders longevity or shows like that CSI, which I don't care for or NCIS, which I also don't care for. But, um, you know, some of the most long running popular shows in television are based on true crime or courtroom dramas that involve true crime. So um, obviously there's something there that captures not just, you know, horror fans like us imagination, but really just people in everyday society. I mean, law and order in some iteration has been on television for what, 25 years now. So I I mean, whether it's uh, the original or SVU featuring uh, acting luminary ice T I mean, it's just uh-huh. been on forever, basically. <laughs> so something about that, you know, really, really does fascinate people. And, you know, um, the films that we're discussing today are some of the most acclaimed films, um, acclaimed horror films, uh, certainly of the past 30 years or so. Um, and yeah, I was noticing that as well. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's not just because of how great these films are, uh, which they are objectively both great. Um, but the, also because how much people are drawn to these types of films, I think. You know, there's a reason why, despite the grisly, what is happening in these films, which are just as grisly as other, you know, like slasher films, there's a reason why, you know, someone like Roger Ebert is drawn to these films and drawn to whisk them in his Greatest Movies um, series. Um, and I think part of that is not just how objectively good they are, because something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is objectively good. Um, but doesn't have this draw the same kind of fascination from mainstream audiences. I think it it really is a big part of it is just our fascination with these types of stories. Mm-hmm. And so the other side of the coin I wanted to talk about real quick before we get into um, our movies is uh, so we don't really talk about this on the podcast a lot because I think we're coming from I feel like on our podcast we feel like we're speaking to other horror fans slash our friends who are sympathetic to us, but I guess there are still people out there who think who that give us their who, pity and yes. yeah, who give us their uh, pity, p- pity, listen, um, hashtag Alex, hashtag everyone, uh, except for like our two <laughs> like random fans that we got from Twitter. Um, <laughs> but like, I think we come from the assumption that like horror is like fine and it's okay to like horror movies, but there are still people out there who think like, if you like horror movies or if you like watching violent content, um, there must be something wrong with you or, or just that it's weird. And the same can be said of people who enjoy like violent video games. There's long been kind of like a fear in the social zeitgeist that people who like violent video games are themselves prone to violence. So 
as I was doing, which is not true. You're like one of the least violent people I know. And you like violent people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just sorry. My boyfriend, Justin, is the least violent person I know, like hands down. And he plays all of like those violent videos. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to (laughs) say two visits ago when I went to go visit you guys, he was playing a game that involved uh, routine decapitations. And he's just sitting there calmly on his little yoga ball, just decapitating people (laughs) left and right. I'm like, this is such a weird scene. (laughs) He frequently like plays violent video games sitting on his yoga ball next to all of his like massage equipment that he keeps in the same room with a soothing Um, candle lit (laughs) yeah like giving himself like feet massages anyway so i found this really interesting article and i won't go too too much into it but i thought it kind of tied into our theme and it's just not something we've discussed before which like almost 30 episodes in i'm surprised but this theory or this idea that like violence watching violence engaging in violence including horror movies um begets violence and so this is an article from the washington post by Catherine l milkman and it's called what if horror movies actually stop crime not cause it so mm-hmm. there were these researchers who looked into the um the question uh like do do horror fans or people who enjoy horror movies are they more violent so the article goes, what if when it comes to preventing real life violence, horror films are actually helpful? That's what economists Gordon Dahl and Stefano Delavigna found when they analyzed the impact of different blockbuster movies released in the United States over a decade. According to their analysis, for every million people who view a violent film on a given day, violent crime decreases across the nation by 1.2%. So there's a lot of reasons why this might be this article was written two years ago one of the things they mentioned is like alcohol is a driving force behind like certain crimes and since people go to a movie and they watch a movie they're not like out at a bar drinking maybe that's why they commit less crimes but they also were like i mean it's not like movie theaters serve alcohol and i was like i don't think i've ever been to a movie theater that doesn't sell alcohol but yeah we're we're stubs members though we go to amc (laughs) we go to mcguffins we enjoy a good drink i love i love mcguffins i love the 12 dollar plastic cup of wine i can't yeah but um so the the other part of the article i wanted to read is according to doll and delavinia people who might otherwise commit crimes are drawn into movie theaters when a violent film is released and so aren't available to commit assaults in addition the economists found violent film attendance led to particularly large decreases in assaults involving alcohol and drugs and had a larger deterrent effect for potential offenders just above the legal drinking age. That suggests that violent films prevent crime in part by reducing potential criminals' alcohol consumption. Importantly, though, studying the long-term effects of violent films on crime wasn't possible in this context. The researchers found no evidence of medium run-up effects up to three weeks after initial exposure to violent films. So it seems more that, like, people who might be prone to violence are also possibly drawn to violent content but that in consuming that content it reduced their propensity to like commit violent Mm -hmm. acts so not like that doesn't look great for us because is it like oh am i prone to (laughs) violence which i don't think we are but you know um i just thought that was really interesting because even though there seems to be this like narrative in the zeitgeist like i've read a lot of things that say actually the opposite is true people who play violent video games are actually more calm in real life and people who like horror movies are actually like also more calm in real life like you yeah. know like it's actually the opposite of what you would assume it's so. really interesting that you bring that up because i just received um i thought my fangoria subscription had run out but i just received a new issue of fangoria 
Um, just last night. I think that uh, might have been supposed to be sent to me, but that's okay. I will, um, it, I will have I to will get my own subscription. promptly <laughs> deliver it to you uh, after I'm done reading it. But the first article in the Fangoria is actually an article by an attorney who was actually 26 at the time, a very young attorney. I am uh, 30 years old, um, and I've been an attorney for five years, and I still feel like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So this is it's quite remarkable that he kind of led this charge. But back in, um, you know, 30 years ago... Um, there was a big push. Um, this is what during the VHS boom era. So uh, a lot of people were consuming um, home video. It kind of was a little bit of the Wild West. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the video nasties in Britain. That was sort of their response to like, you know, we can't have just anybody watching these videos. Um, Tipper Gore, uh, who is Al Gore's wife, kind of led the charge against uh, violent movies Violent video games, uh, profane music. She's the one that kind of led to the parental advisory on c- CDs and um, tapes and whatever people were listening to back then. Um, but after that was after that had occurred, she kind of went after the videos. And you know, the this this lawyer was saying, you know, everybody was um, saying, you know, this is just going to make our kids want to go out and commit violent acts. They're going to replicate what they see. And he was like. Well, no. How does that make any sense at all? Well, number one, if you're like you said, if you are consuming something, that means necessarily that you're not going out and doing something. So there's like the very basic fact of that. But also, you know, even back then, there were studies showing that if you consume this type of media, you are less likely because what is your reaction? You know, you and I, we watch films where we see something violent happen on screen. Our Most of the time, our reaction is like, you know, to be repulsed by the violence we're seeing unless it's like cheesy or intentionally funny in which case like i don't just because i feel as though violence is funny in a film doesn't mean i'm gonna think it's funny when i go out and do it in real life so a lot of the arguments against um you know violent films back then was because of like exposure to children like what are the children gonna think but you know even back then, a lot of the argument was like, basically, look, we have studies showing that this just is not the case. And for violent people, you know, um, he was saying that, you know, there were studies showing that for violent people, it was actually a cathartic experience to watch films. Now, again, that doesn't like, does that mean that everybody that consumes this media is violent? No, but like, there's really never been any kind of study or any reputable source that shows that these types of violent films or violent video games lead someone to be violent. And if anything, it's really the opposite. But this has really been a conversation that's been going on for 30 plus years at this point. Yeah, I find that so interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of that way with a lot of different topics. And I don't want to go too far down that road. But I feel like there's a common thing in the culture that everyone believes. And it doesn't matter how many studies and Mm -hmm. you know whatever say the opposite like people are gonna believe what they're gonna believe Mm -hmm. um and that's unfortunate but like i also feel like again things like true crime and things like uh watching horror movies and things like playing violent video games are becoming a little less like you're a freak for enjoying those things so i hope that that's kind of where our culture i mean i'm still a freak i mean come on i'm still a freak like a like core and freak on a leash type of stuff. Yeah, of course, that was one of my yeah. favorite songs of doing karaoke. <laughs> Let's just move on. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of give an overview. I I mean, 
there's a lot of different things that we we always like to chat a little bit at the top before we get into our movies and there was a lot of things we could have talked about but i i was thinking wow we've never really talked about this uh cultural cultural idea that like fans of horror films are also like violent criminals so like let's let's chat about that a little bit but uh, now that we have uh, that in our in our swift uh, corn freak on a leash discussion um, out of the baka, way, um, bum, I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm so I like so the film we're talking your film that we're gonna talk about first. I think since probably our like fourth or fifth episode, and God, we're on episode like 28 or something now. Mm. I'm like, I wonder when we're gonna talk about this film. So we finally are. So let's get into it. Sure, sure, and um. You know, I've been more um, leaning. Originally, when we first started doing this podcast, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a, some gems. Um, you know, obviously, our first episode was on, you know, our favorite movies ever. So that wasn't possible. But I've always wanted to kind of point out, like, maybe gems that people haven't seen, films that I'm a really big fan of that I know a lot of people haven't seen. But lately, I've been wanting to discuss some of the bigger films, the bigger horror films out there. And this certainly is the case here, just because, like, we all have seen these films. We all enjoy them. We all, everybody will know what I'm talking about. Everybody can engage. And honestly, we need that social media engagement and that we need to get more email. So I'm just putting out, yeah. putting some bait out there, some fresh yeah, raw you really bait. Are. But, this is some real bait. <laughs> but, uh, I'm just a really, like everybody else, I'm just a really big fan of my film, Silence of the Lambs. And I really want to talk about it because it's not only an interesting film, um, you know, from a historical perspective, from a crime perspective as like a crime drama, it's almost like uh, just a, a horror episode of Law and Order that is like a horror, more horror themed. But also, I want to have the opportunity to talk about some of the problematic aspects of this film, which we will do. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this film um, in the 15 or 20 minutes we will be talking about it. Um, Silence of the Lambs, as everybody knows, was um, made in 1991. Um, it's directed by Jonathan Demme. Uh, I'm not really too familiar with his other work, but he really uh, did a great job here. Uh, it stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and Scott Glenn primarily. Ooh, excuse me. Um, people may not know, may know, may not know, but this is actually the second film um, to feature the character of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, Taylor, do you know what the first film was to feature Hannibal Lecter by any chance? You would know better than I would, but you might not know. Okay, wait. Can you give me a clue? Um, no. Is it a horror? A horror? Film? No, not really. It's more of a thriller, I would say. More of a thriller than this film. It's from 1986. 1986. God. Okay, I don't want to bore the That's listeners. That's We can cut that out so. anyway. But um, it's it's a movie called Manhunter. It's actually a film I wasn't oh, okay. familiar with. I looked on the Wikipedia and read the plot. Um, but uh, Silence of the Lambs is based off the eponymous book by uh, Thomas Harris. Um, have you ever read that? book i know you're our resident book reader is it good i have indeed yes it's very good and so are the follow-up i i read the two follow-ups i believe Which is, as well are those what the hannibal like, and red dragon are based off of the sequels yeah yeah okay. yeah um mm-hmm. and um one last you know i actually believe it or not i I, w- I thought we might have an intense conversation or you know like a in-depth conversation that remains to be seen but i did not do any uh trivia for this film as i normally do but i could not help myself um, I wanted to give at least one little interesting factoid about this film that everybody knows, by the way, because this film famously uh, swept all five major Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. Okay, I uh, I I want to guess what your trivia is. No, that's that's the trivia. I don't want to steal your thought. That's the trivia. Oh, I have a I have a fun trivia oh, about it. this yeah, film. Yeah. 
Okay, so Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor, right? Yes, correct. It was Anthony Hopkins. And I, okay, don't quote me. I'm like 80% sure that this is correct. He is the best at, at the time I read this piece of trivia, which was a few years ago, he was the best actor uh, award winner with the least amount of screen time in the really? in the awards history. He's only in the film, his face, for about like 25 minutes. Yeah, it might even be less than that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially if, so, if you, unless you, uh, do you count when he has the mask on? Do you actually, because you don't actually see you his count face. When he has, so he, he has like, you know, he, wow, you laughed really hard at that. Uh, he has like, he has like three major scenes with Clarice, mm-hmm. and then he has the scene, um, like, well, I don't want to. G- I don't know why I'm like spoiler alert. He yeah. gets away. You know, he has a scene where he gets away, and then he has the scene at the very end. But think about it, like, it's not very those much. Scenes aren't more, th- and yeah, the film so. isn't necessarily like centered on him, uh, so to speak. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not really about him. Yeah, but his it's interesting but his that he presence. Would- his presence looms large mm-hmm. in the film. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's just that, again, uh, we always talk about on here how um, films, horror films get overlooked by the Oscars a lot. So it's really interesting to see a horror film uh, sweep the five Oscar categories because I think yeah. maybe three or four in history. I know... Um, I believe Gone with the Wind did the same. I couldn't, I don't have, I didn't look up which other ones did, but I well, believe Gone with the Wind did. But when you look into, um, you know, this film, you, I was reading the Wikipedia, I read a few articles on it. This film was billed as a thriller. Everybody thought of yeah. it as a thriller. It's obviously a horror movie, but that is perhaps mm-hmm. why it kind of got away with it a little bit. Well, and I also was reflecting on how many horror films have won Oscars, period. Like, it was a big deal when Jordan Peele even won Best Screenplay yes. for Get Out. Like, I, I can't even think of a lot of horror movies that have won any Oscars, let alone the big five. I mean, so, I, could you yeah. even think of another one that won Best Picture? Because I can't off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> if you count Shape of Water as a horror film, which I that's guess true. some people do. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess that's the most horror-adjacent um, yeah. film that has won an Oscar. But uh, I'm sure I'm look- overlooking something obvious. Um, oh, I'm sure. And I mean, I think, you know, we don't know. We're not Oscar buffs on this show. No, not But at all. I'm sure some of the Hammer films won stuff. Yeah, Best Costume or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, yeah, we're this is going to be spoiler free. I'm about to go into the plot of the film. And I'm going to talk about, um, you know, some of my favorite scenes. Because just one of the things that's fun to talk about with this film is just your favorite things about it. Because it's just such a beautiful... I mean, beautiful maybe is not the right word, but it really is a stunning film. Um, the acting is just great. Um, and, you know, the story is just incredible. And I love, uh, you know, I've been um, watching Mindhunter Season 2, which is Ooh, really, well. really, really fantastic. And I got, I was just in the right mindset to watch this again because it really is like the same premise as Mindhunter. I'm going to talk to a serial killer to figure out how to, catch a serial killer and that's really what they're doing in Mindhunter they're trying to develop well I mean this is much more rudimentary in Mindhunter they're trying to you know get the research to you know develop well, profiles and all that kind of stuff but yeah well and then I was kind of noticing because I also was watching Mindhunter when I rewatched Silence of the Lambs and she wants to be part of the behavioral sciences exactly. unit which was started by the guys in Mindhunter yes. so that's kind of a cool connection exactly so yeah let's let's get into the plot before no more uh dilly-dallying so um (laughs) Jodie Foster plays a character named Clarice um and uh she is a student uh trying to 
basically, I, I don't know how the FBI works necessarily, but she's basically a student trying to get into the FBI. She wants to work in the behavioral uh, science unit. And she's assigned to speak with, as a part of like these interviews they're doing, kind of reminiscent of what Mindhunter does. They're trying to just, you know, under the pretext of, you know, speaking with, um, to get information about Hannibal Lecter to help with their profiles, she's asked to speak with Hannibal Lecter, who is this, excuse me, um, serial killer that's kind of loosely based off of Ed Gein, as is every serial killer in every movie that we ever watch. Um, but he is like a very, he is a former psychiatrist, right? Who, yes. um, who um, was a serial killer who cannibalized his victims. He would eat Hannibal the, the cannibal. Hannibal the cannibal is his nickname. So um, she goes to speak with Dr. Hannibal Lecter at the um, hospital that he is at, or, you know, the, the insane asylum. I don't know what, I don't remember what they refer to it as, but um, she's speaking with Hannibal Lecter, but as she's speaking with him, it because it's very difficult. Apparently he turns away almost everybody he speaks to, but I guess he recognizes her, both her intelligence, but his ability to kind of like manipulate her a little bit and get something out of her. Um, the discussion that they're having quickly turns to a serial killer that's currently at large, uh, who is nicknamed Buffalo Bill. And um, Buffalo Bill is a serial killer who, um, as Hannibal explains later in the film, has was unsuccessful in her uh, her transition into a female. And so she kills women to sew like a female suit uh and that's that's how hannibal explains it and i just to clarify i every we'll get into this aspect about um trans misogyny and um you know transphobia uh later i will be referring to buffalo bill as she because that's how all of these articles that i read referred to her as i don't you know if you have a problem with it, you can email us and I'll delete the email and not read it. And you can also stop listening to the podcast if you well, have a problem with it. So, <laughs> Yes, you can stop listening to the podcast. I would like to clarify for those who possibly might be confused, that is not how she's referred to in the Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, that is how I will be referring to it. You can call me a social justice warrior. You can also just stop listening to the podcast. I don't care. It doesn't make a difference to me. But we'll, like I said, I... I I just want to be clear up front. We recognize the problematic aspects. We will be getting into that um, at the end of the episode. Um, so there's a portion when uh, Clarice is first meeting with Hannibal Lecter where another inmate, uh, Miggs, uh, ejaculates on her. And Hannibal's just really embarrassed. Uh, he's like, I can't believe these savages. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Come and speak with me later. I'm sorry this happened to you. And when she comes to speak with him later, she finds out that this uh, – this inmate has died because Hannibal basically talked to him and convinced him to commit suicide. Um, and in talking with Hannibal Lecter a second time, Hannibal leads her to the storage unit where Clarice finds like a severed head inside of a um, jar. And we later find out this severed head is from one of Bill's victims. And so the connections between Bill and Hannibal are becoming more and more clear. And we be, we later learn that you know, instead of actually having Clarice interview Hannibal to um, kind of just get a pro like information for a profile, the reason they did this was so that she could get information about Bill. The Behavior Science Unit is trying to track down Bill basically, and they know that Hannibal has this information, but they also know that Hannibal won't talk to them and will only talk to you know someone like Clarice. They did this, you know, they had a whole plan to basically um, you know have her speak with him and get more information. 
and um you know there's a lot of really interesting scenes um you know one of the uh, other the other plot line that's occurring in this film is that a senator a senator in Tennessee's daughter is kidnapped by Bill so there's a little bit of urgency going on in the film as they're trying to figure out and get more information from Hannibal Hannibal's uh you know um leveraging this information to get placed in a better cell um and is tr- you know very very slowly trickling information to Clarice um, and who has since joined in the investigation, the official investigation, despite being a student, which I had was a little bit curious, I thought. But despite being a student, she doesn't join the official investigation of Buffalo Bill. Uh, she researches his body that they find in West Virginia at some point in the film. Um, and again, Hannibal's moved to a better location. And, um, you know, this is kind of uh, where shit starts to hit the fan in both plot lines. Hannibal having been moved and having given Clarice enough kind of enough information to go out and find Bill Hannibal kind of makes his move and is able to escape in a very grisly, but also like just well shot in the, and beautifully acted. And there's classical music playing. He's just a, he attacks these guards. He escapes. Um, and subsequently after this, based on the tip she gets from Hannibal, um, you know, Clarice is investigating the death of Bill's first victim and kind of stumbles into finding Bill, um, thinking that, you know, she's following a lead to kind of investigate the thing further. She finds herself in Bill's house and she realizes, you know, kind of, well, my interpretation of it is she kind of realizes the gravity of the information that Hannibal is. She thought Hannibal was holding back on her, but she actually has gotten this information. And the scene is... When, uh, you know, one scene I really just want to point out um, as I kind of wrap up the plot here, I mean, you know, basically in, by the end of the film, she there she shoots Bill and, you know, the film ends on that essentially, um, or what it actually ends on Hannibal giving her a call and being like, I'm at large, you know, LOL. Um, but uh, the exactly what I would do in that. Situation, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's actually tracking down the doctor of the original hospital. He's at because he was he really hated him and he would torture Hannibal. But um, one of the best scenes in the film is when Clarice approaches Bill's house because, again, she thinks she's knocking on the door of like someone who will lead her to Bill eventually. And at the same time, members of the behavioral health uh, science unit think they've tracked down Bill as well. So they set up this SWAT stuff. They're knocking on the door and. At the same time, we see Bill, who we know what we know what Bill looks like, and we know that, you know, she is about to answer the door. And instead of answering the door to the behavioral science unit, like you're led to believe based on this kind of scene by scene, you know, uh, editing, uh, Bill actually answers the door to Clarice, and that's kind of where we get the climax of the film. And I just thought, I you know, again, it's been a few years uh, since I've watched this film, and that yeah. film, that scene is still so effective, and. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess just overall, like when you're talking, especially I'm in this mindset. I've been watching Mindhunter and, you know, the second season I've heard ends with kind of a, a loud fart, but uh, or wet fart, whatever the term is. I don't even know if they're I think I might. Just, I think it's wet fart. Wet fart. Um, I've just been enjoying it so much. So I was in the perfect mindset to watch this film. The, you know, the originality of the idea for back then just of incorporating this character who has kind of some tangential unknown relation to the main plot thread of finding bill is just so interesting to me. And, you know, so, but, Oh, go ahead. But like, 
sorry just to say but but based on real life exactly because the mind hunter guys that's based on a true story and they and they did go interview serial killers to to find out about other possible serial killers and violent violent killers so like i think it, it a lot of the innovation comes from just like i think people didn't realize that that was a thing before science of the lambs but mm-hmm. it, it does make sense not that all serial killers are alike um but the idea that you could possibly catch a serial killer by profiling them and that the way to profile them is to interview other serial killers i mean i just don't think that was in the public consciousness before this movie exactly you know? and exactly so i will say um one of the more interesting aspects of this film is not only that aspect but the the way that hannibal's character kind of ties to bill's character as well and the way that these two plot threads interact in ways that you don't expect and the way that kind of plays into the horror as well because there are points in this film where you forget almost that hannibal is a serial killer because the way the chemistry that jodie foster and anthony perkins have the way they're communicating hopkins anthony hopkins. what did i say anthony perkins it's a psycho ah, guy yes yes <laughs> totally wrong uh the way that they're interacting is so natural and almost as if you know they're friends or something and the horror really comes from the fact that this character that Anthony Hopkins is playing is so unhinged, but so able to kind of like compose himself. And the scene where you see him escape, this ferocity like comes out in such like a unexpected and like shocking way. And yeah. And Oh no, please go ahead. Well, in, in the, I thought it was clever. um, And I've seen this film. I mean, probably like five or six times, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't seen it in a while. I noticed this time around that right before Clarice goes to meet him, the um, the doctor that's in charge of Hannibal uh, says, you really need to watch yourself. You need to watch yourself. He really drills that down. And he hands her a picture and he says, this is uh, what he did to a nurse yeah. who like turned her back on him. But we don't see that picture. So our our like vision of Hannibal through most of the film is what you were describing, which is that we kind of forget that he's yeah. like this psycho and then so that makes that ferocity all the much more shocking but still believable because we have that kind of callback from like at the very beginning of the film absolutely and i just think their relationship in this film is one of the all-time great like you know horror relationship it's really reminiscent to me of um norman bates and um shit i can't remember her name from psycho but really where you know the audience has like some, you know, you've you've heard about Psycho before you go and watching this film. And I'm sure people going into this film knowing it's Alfred Hitchcock had some understanding of where this film was going. So there's that undercurrent when they're ha- when Norman Bates and um, the main character in Psycho who dies in the shower scene. I cannot remember her name off the top of my head. And I apologize for not doing my research. On I mean, this. me neither. So uh, but there's fine. this undercurrent of like. You know, there's just menacing undercurrent when they're talking, but also they have so much, you know, there's so much on-screen chemistry there. You know, he's really charming. You know, she is able to kind of, she lets her guard down a little bit, and then it culminates in this act. And though, and though, um, you know, uh, Hannibal Lecter does not attack Clarice, so it's a little bit different. It's just as like such an, in, there's almost like three climaxes to this film in a way, you know, like there's just so many points in this yeah. film where everything just kind of comes to a head in a way that in retrospect, you realize like, 
you know, all of these puzzle pieces were coming together behind the scenes and you just don't see it, but everything makes sense in retrospect. And even on subsequent viewings, you're so immersed in the film, you don't realize all these things are coming together, even though you know exactly what's going to happen. You get sucked in mm-hmm. the same way I felt as though um, that is the case. So, yeah. Um, um, listen, I know that you have a, a bigger topic that you want to talk about. And since we're running a little long, I just wanted to hop in and talk about kind of my favorite aspect oh, yeah, please, of the film. Um, I love Jodie Foster's character the most. Um, there's been a lot of think pieces that I've read about how like she's a woman in a man's world. And there's a lot of really great shots of her illustrating that there's the one at the very beginning where she gets into the elevator and she's like this tiny woman surrounded by like all these mm-hmm. big men. There's obviously the scene where she has, semen thrown on her um there's the scene where she's like wearing the uh the night vision goggles and it's you you know you just see her alone and she looks so tiny you know and i think she plays off of her like physicality as being really small but like strong really smartly throughout the film and i kind of i i love her character in particular because i think um movies about strong quote-unquote female characters tend to swing way too high in the other direction of Uh, you know women can either be like super girly and super feminine or they have to be like super tough and like really masculine and i think she walks a pretty um fine line you know like there nothing about her appearance is like very very feminine or very very masculine nothing about her demeanor is very very feminine or very very masculine and i I like her character because she is not (laughs) you know she's not a caricature of of any one kind of thing um there is a I, I know there's also a, a lot of um, discussion about how she's like from the South and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Dr. Lecker, Dr. Lecter ha- at the beginning of the film makes a big deal about how she's, you know, not one generation away from white trash. That's another reading of it. But I did kind of just want to um, make mention of the fact that she has a really interesting story arc as kind of being like a young woman, very specifically like in this like not only male dominated field, but a male dominated movie. You know, she's very frequently shown just around other men. She has like one female friend that we see occasionally. Yeah. So yeah, totally. Um, And so before, before I finish um, my discussion and our discussion of this film, I just want to very, I am not, we are not the right people to kind of tackle this subject uh, adequately. And I want to give, I read a few articles on this aspect because I knew we could not talk about Silence of the Lambs without discussing the transmisogyny and transphobia apparent in this film. Um, so I just want to give a huge shout out to the article I'm about to read from, which is called My Auntie Buffalo Bill, The Unavoidable Transmisogyny of Silence of the Lambs. It's an article by Josh Truitt in a, femi- a, a website called Feministing. I will when I post about this article, uh, this episode on Twitter, I'll include this article in the thread about it. I would highly suggest this is incredible read um, and kind of is a very, very, um, you know, salient and harsh critique of this film. Um, I I think if someone uh, wants us to discuss this further, um, please email us about it, because I think there's a lot to be said about films like this that have these unavoidable problematic aspects and like how that can kind of limit our enjoyment of these films. Um, I think it's not, it, it, it is kind of the reverse of like the problem of separating the art from the artist kind of thing. Like 
in that sense, you have these like you know that you, you often have awful people making brilliant films. In this sense, you have like a brilliant film experience, like expressing something that is extremely problematic. And I think that's a, like something that certainly you know I think we'd both be willing to discuss even further. Um, however, you know, I will at least try. I will at least read from this article and kind of you know discuss the problematic aspects of this film. And, um, you know, it, it really, you know, the character of Buffalo Bill is a trans woman, um, and it is treated, this aspect of her character is treated as kind of like a pathology, as like a disease or an illness. And Hannibal, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I really don't want to keep on interrupting you, but I wanted to point out that until very recently, I don't have the date um, on hand, but until very recently, being transgender uh, was considered a, a pathology mm-hmm. under the D- DSM. What is it called? The DSM. The, the diagnostic. Yeah. yeah, the DSM. Um, I don't know if you were going to get into that in your article, but um, you know this film was from the early '90s, and so they could have been still going off of that. It is uh, per- incorrect. It is a product of its time to a certain extent, and um, you know, there Hannibal Lecter in discussing. Uh, Buffalo Bill in this film says that, um, you know, she is someone who was not able to transition and is someone who is like lashing out because of that and attacking women, you know, attacking quote unquote real women uh, because of that. And um, back in the early 90s, a lot of determination of whether or not you were able to transition was based on your presentation as a trans woman or excuse me whether you were able to transition, get the surgery, like transition in the sense of getting like surgeries, like gender reassignment surgery, things of that nature was whether you were able to um, present as a quote unquote, you know, woman, like a gender conforming, you know, traditional type of woman. And so a lot of this film is based on the times, you know, based on what was occurring with trans women at that time. And this article says, um, Bill's diagnosis is based in homophobic transmisogyny. Bill doesn't just represent the pathologizing of trans women, but the specific pathologizing and ungendering of non-straight trans women. To accept the film's dismissal as Bill of Bill as not really trans is also to accept that many trans women are not really trans. It goes on to say that far from inadvertently stumbling, stumbling upon a transmisogynistic supervillain, which a lot of people have argued that this is just kind of like, you know, just a incidental part of the film um the article says that silence of the lambs actually actively promoted a transmisogynistic idea birthed by people operating under the feminist label that trans women are the ultimate representation representation of male violence i know the people at uh, well it's referring to another article excuse me um you can't ignore the real harm that has been done to trans women by uh, cis feminism. Silence of the Lambs is so fundamentally a work of transmisogyny, one that advocates ideas so inextricably tied to transmisogynistic Janice Raymond-style cis feminism that any true feminist engagement with this film must grapple with these issues. And again, um, you know, unfortunately, we are not very well equipped. You know, a lot of the what I am familiar with in terms of, you know, this film's and its problematic aspects are just from reading articles. However, I did want to at least make sure that we covered this aspect of the film and at least discussed it because it is something that, again, is inescapable when it comes to this film, which is a hard thing to confront when it is such a, Mm -hmm. you know, work of art, quite frankly. So I I did want to make sure we discussed that aspect of the film. Yeah. 
and I and I would be uh, and I will be reading that article and checking that out. We can link it in the show notes mm-hmm. um, for everyone else to check out. I think that these are just really important things to keep in mind. And we have discussed on the show too, being really critical of the art that we consume and how it affects our assumptions about the world. Um, so to be clear, all women are women. It does not matter, you know, what gender you were assigned at birth or how you present. Um, you know, how you identify is how you identify. Um, and I think that that's a lot of really um, interesting and good information for everyone um, to know and to be like well versed in. And again, to just be critical of the art we consume because it influences how we see the world, you know. Yes. And um, just one final thing on that. You know, if we do, I, I am unaware. I'm not sure if we have any listeners who um, are, you know, trans identify as trans women or trans men. Um but if we do and you want to reach out to us, if you say if you have any critique of anything that I've said, if you want to say anything yourself, we will absolutely uh, read it on air. Again, we're, we're not exactly for obvious reasons the best people to discuss this topic. So if there's anything, you know, if you want to put me on blast for anything I said, please feel free and I will read it on air. Or, or if you have anything additional to say, I just want to make sure we're discussing yeah. about this in a thoughtful, uh, you know, a thoughtful way because it really is, uh, you know, a serious critique of this film. Yeah, um, totally agree. And I'm glad that we were uh, able to discuss that, even if, as you said, we're not the best people to mm-hmm. discuss it, because um, I think that we would be definitely remiss to at least not yeah. mention that. Um, and it's, you know, it definitely does make the enjoyment of Signs of the Lambs uh, very complicated and to consider its role in, um, you know, film history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah, so. I mean, but I... I, I will just leave it on this. I am not going to pretend, you know, it, it, again, it's a problematic aspect of the film and it makes my enjoyment of it complicated. I'm not going to pretend I do not think this film is a work of art and I'm not going to pretend like I don't enjoy this film because I very much do or else we wouldn't have had that first part of the conversation. It is just yeah. a difficult film to discuss um, and it is a film that I did want to discuss and because I wanted to discuss it, I also have to discuss all aspects of it. Yeah. So before we... um move on i uh just want to ask you do you have a favorite line from this film because i feel like it is very quotable oh man i mean i would have i would have to think about it a little bit um i mean obviously i like the classic one you know where he's talking about eating someone's liver um i really like i feel like clarice's dialogue just in general clarice's dialogue is really underrated she's like I love the fact that it's so obvious the way that she's talking, especially to her superiors in the FBI, that she is a like student because she's using all of these technical terms. But then in like her conversational, more conversational moments with Hannibal Lecter, she's like very naturalistic in her talking. Like, I just, I I don't know. I just like I like the way that the I love the characters in this film. I love the the way they speak to one another. I could not pick a I you know, you put me on the spot. I can't okay. pick a line of dialogue. It's supposed to be a quick wrap up, but uh, I, that's let me fine get to one other like aspect it. of the dialogue. No, I'm just kidding. I uh um I just like that she's like, I'm just trying to get to know you, Dr. Lecter Lecter and he's like, A census taker taker once tried to get to know me. I, his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I just like that. That's the context in which it was said. I know it's so. It, it's a, very classic. A census taker. Let's try to get to know. It's like, oh, okay. Um, everyone should fill out their census in 2020. It's extremely important. All right, folks, and um, we're back 
took a quick bathroom break, um, peeked behind the curtain. So, yes, um, I will be discussing another, I mean, amazing, excellent film that got a lot of critical acclaim that also happens to be a crime horror film. And that film, my friends, is the 2007 American crime film Zodiac. This is a David Fincher joint. He also did the amazing Seven, which is my third uh, like it's like seven zodiac and silence mm-hmm. of the lambs are like the three best crime horror mm-hmm. films so i debated i debated to whether or not to do seven but i feel like people talk about seven more than they talk about zodiac so i i, 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 I honest i i enjoy zodiac quite a bit more than seven so i'm really glad you chose this film yeah i also have like a big crush on Jake Gyllenhaal. I love him and his baby face. So I really wanted to talk about that. So uh, Zodiac is actually based on a book called Zodiac by Robert Graysmith. And in the film, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Robert Graysmith. And it also starts, um, stars Mark Ruffalo, total babe. The un- incomparable uh, Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> as Detective Toski, And then Robert Downey Jr. as Paul Avery. This is an all-star cast, folks. Mm-hmm. It really is. And they are all amazing. I mean, it's just... It, it's kind of like one of those tour de force movies. So um, Zodiac, if you're not familiar, I possibly you live under a rock. I'm not here to judge. But uh, Zodiac is the most famous uh, uncaught serial killer next to... I would say jack the ripper you know it used um, to be also, the golden state killer I was about until to say, he was caught yeah until he was caught uh may he burn in hell so uh the film zodiac which is based on the um which is based on the book zodiac so robert graysmith was actually a political cartoonist who worked at um the san francisco chronicle uh when the zodiac was um the zodiac serial killer was uh at large and committing all of his crimes. And um, if you're not familiar with the case, the Zodiac killer used to send letters to the newspaper kind of taunting and I'm going to kill, I'm going to blow up a, a bus full of school children and, and this, that, and the other. So uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays uh, Robert Graysmith, the cartoonist, um, he is really fascinated by the case. Um, he tries to decipher like, the the code that the the zodiac initially sends um he tries to crack this code he really likes puzzles um and he just becomes really involved and he follows all the details of the case and meanwhile while he you kind of see his drama start to unfold on that and paul avery is a um journalist who covers all of the zodiac cases and they kind of have a a friendship you also see on the other um the other side uh mark ruffalo who plays the main detective basically like oh, there's been another killing. There's been another killing. And he is trying to solve the case. Now, the Zodiac, no one was ever arrested um, in connection with the Zodiac killings. They had one main suspect. Uh, They go question him, but they don't arrest him. Um, And so the film isn't about like catching the killer, which I think is really interesting. It's about, and I read this review that was like, it's about like, it's a police procedural. It's like you follow them. As they find this, they question people. It doesn't really lead to anything. Then they kind of do that again. So the real kind of, I think, emotional arc of the film is Jake Gyllenhaal's character who becomes really obsessed with the case. And, and you see how it starts to like affect his life. 
Um, he then starts, um, after the case kind of goes cold, he starts investigating it himself. He gets access to the case files. He questions people, um, et cetera, et cetera, which is why uh, the uh, the person whose character was based off of, like, eventually writes the book called Zodiac, which was a bestseller. And um, But yeah, to this day, uh, no one has been charged um, in connection with the Zodiac murders and the one person um, who was the main suspect. Uh, they had enough evidence where they were ready to arrest him and then on their way to go arrest him. Um, not on the way, but like around the time that they were going to go arrest him. Uh, he died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So probably I would get I mean, after the Golden State Killer thing happened, everyone was like Zodiac is next. It's happening. I don't know if this case will ever be solved to satisfaction because if it turns out based on DNA, it was this guy that died of a heart attack. It's like, well, he's dead. I mean, there's no real closure there. I feel like so. Um, it's just a really like what I like about the film is that it doesn't, it just feels very steady. It's a two and a half hour long film. So you would think it feels like a slog, but it's almost like there's like kind of four movies in mm-hmm. one. There's like, there's like you see people being killed like you see the zodiac killing people that's kind of one little story you see robert gray smith and him his investigation that's another story mark toski invite you know investigating that's another story and then at the end of the film as you're kind of seeing how the events eventually played out that's kind of like the fourth like act of the story so there's just a lot going on it makes it kind of hard to describe to be honest with you but hopefully i did a pretty okay job oh you did Um, great it was fantastic thank you so much (laughs) Um, and this has uh, uh, the honor of being one of the very few uh, horror films that Roger Ebert really liked. Um, he gave it four stars. Um, this is while he was still alive, so it's actually a review of his. Um, and I just, I think he makes a lot of really uh, good points in his in his like review of the film. Um, and so I just want to read like a, a little you know snippet of that he says what makes zodiac authentic is the way it avoids chases shootouts grandstanding and false climaxes and just follows the methodical progress of police work just as woodward and bernstein knocked on many doors and made many phone calls and met many very odd people so do the cops and graysmith walk down strange pathways in their investigation because graysmith is unarmed and civilian we become genuinely worried about his naivete and risk-taking especially during a trip to the basement that is in its way one of the best scenes i've ever seen along those lines um and so i kind of wanted to start with this is it verges on being a horror film i would say it's more of a thriller police procedural um but i i guess i wanted to talk about maybe some of the more like horror aspects of this film starting with that basement scene so robert goes to a possible you know, suspects how, well, he questions this guy mm-hmm. and, and in, in the course of questioning him finds out like he's more connected to the case than he initially thought. And he makes the, I would say dumb decision to follow this guy down into his basement um, to get some boxes. And then he's like, Oh shit. And he kind of rushes out, but you stay down in that basement for so long that it really does kind of start to border on like, the scary mm-hmm. um and then there's also just like it's really weird because i feel like the film goes between like kind of just mundane like we're showing you the daily works workings of a newspaper the daily workings of a police um office to like 
showing these like really brutal killings of the Zodiac. Yes. So yeah, yeah. that's to me almost the most horrific thing is that it, it moves so easily between those two elements. Yeah. I, you know, I think the more traditional horror aspects are that basement scene and the killings of Zodiac. Some of the killings, especially at the beginning of this film are very, very tense, even though you kind of know what's going to happen. There's a lot of it. None of them are quite jump scares, but they have like kind of that element to it where you're just kind of sitting back in your seat waiting for something to happen but to i don't want to be like so last week i said that you know the um term juxtaposition is a term that someone uses to sound really smart but they're not actually smart i'm going to use another term that people use to sound really smart that when they're not really that smart existential dread is something that this <laughs> film has a lot of but i i was just thinking about it now i can't there's no other better way to put it. I mean, it just has a lot of existential dread, which is not necessarily a hallmark of a horror film, um, but it is, you know, it is a type of horror that you experience because I, you know, I'm going to go into maybe being too much of a pretentious douche right now, but um, this film reminded me of another film that I watched back in college uh, for for class, for in my film class. It was called La Aventura, uh, by Michael Antonioni, which was my um, professor's favorite director. So we watched many of his films. But it's a film about these friends on vacation, and one of the friends gets lost. So they're all on vacation, all having fun. One of the friends gets lost. They decide to, you know, we have to find this guy. And as the film goes along, a lot of the friends just become, like, disinterested. They stop caring. And by the end of the film, like, the main character is, like, realizing, like, yeah, I don't really care either. And you like the point of the film is that like, you know, basically there's like, you know, things happen in the world and they come and go and like we just forget about things. And it, it, it's kind of like the world we live in now. Like, you know, we see different things in the news all the time um, and it just kind of comes and goes and we forget like how scary things seemed like two or three days ago. And I feel like this film has a lot of that flavor, like when the Zodiac killer was happening, when all this stuff was happening, you see it in the film, people are scared. There's these tense moments where the Zodiac killer is killing and when they're investigating, trying to figure out what's going on. And then eventually, as the film goes on, that kind of goes away. The frustration builds with the police department and with Jake Gyllenhaal's character, uh, who, again, who really remains the only person kind of really determined uh, because of his interest in this case. But eventually, as this film goes on, it just all kind of falls by the wayside until kind of the film just ends. And I think in that respect, I mean, I guess it's just, again, existential dread. I mean, you know, these things happen and they seem like the biggest thing in the world. They seem like the most scary thing imaginable. And then we kind of just forget about it and we move on to the next one. And, you know, along with that, I mean, you know, La Aventura is not a horror film and it's quite boring, honestly, if you can imagine based on my description of it. Zodiac is a far more entertaining version of that kind of film. But both of these films are just kind of about that same thing. And, you know, it's a, it, I, that's why I like Zodiac so much. It's it, this aspect of like a true crime story or a serial killer horror or drama that, you know, the films that we usually see are like Silence of the Lambs are so sensationalized and so entertaining and you kind of get everything that you want to get. This film is such a realistic and, you know, true to life depiction of how a lot of investigations go. Yeah. And I really love that yeah. aspect of this film. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Like, my favorite aspect is that it follows, like, 
what actually happened and it manages like I'm sure like for all of us who say that we're obsessed with true crime do I want to go like read <laughs> like case notes do I want to go look at evidence no I want to hear like what happened and what the resolution was mm-hmm. you know and this film somehow manages to make the methodical work of like did you know of the detectives and of investigating this and of one man's obsession with it like interesting you know and it and it i think more accurately portray, portrays how these types of of cases go like if you don't find the killer within like the first like few days you're probably yeah. not going to like find him you know and and that's really unfortunate but i think that we are so used to like getting some kind of catharsis through catching somebody or like by there being some kind of resolution and i think this film because of its source material both can't give you a resolution but also isn't interested in the resolution it's interested in the people that this crime affected mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it- probably because it's based on a book about a guy whose life was affected by the zodiac killer like he became so obsessed with and you know investigating it that he like got a divorce like his mm-hmm. wife like couldn't handle it anymore you know played by chloe sevigny in the uh, movie by the way she's, she's amazing. amazing yeah i just I love her <laughs> this film is so unique among uh these types of films that it really like you know the idea of a film that's about like the frustration and you know the uh just like hopelessness of a serial killer investigation that goes kind of wrong um, where the trail goes goes cold seems like almost boring uh, when we're describing it, but really like the drama and the sadness and the horror of this film is just so well done. I've just never really seen a film like this before. I mean, it has a lot of similarities to the film I mentioned earlier, but this is a horror film. This is a true crime film. And it's just totally unique in that respect and, you know, makes me feel differently watching this film than I have watching pretty much any other horror film and um, really just kudos to kind of I mean even having the the uh, you know uh, bravery to kind of make a film like this because you know again we talked about uh, seven uh, David Fincher directed seven and I'm sure a lot of people thought or were hoping for like a movie um you know, kind of fictionalizing the Zodiac account and being more like Seven, but he really, like, was very brave in making this film, and I really, I'm just very much in in love with this film, and it really is, um, you know, it's borderline a horror film, but certainly, you know, if we were going to categorize it as a horror film, it's certainly one of the best horror films that has been made um, this century, because it's just totally unique and uh, absolutely and totally just really interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, for all our true crime fans out there, um, I also just wanted to mention that, and I mean, there's no, absolutely no way to judge this, but of most of the um, films, you know, that were based on true events, Zodiac is like remarkably close to like what actually happened and what things actually looked like. Uh, The set design, the costumes, um, down to how the victims were dressed are all like what actually happened. And so a lot of the trivia that I have is uh, like is is related to that. So first of all, um, there is a real life Zodiac survivor in the film. He is at the beginning and end of the film. His name is Mike Mago. 
Another piece of trivia, the murder victim's costumes were meticulously recreated from forensic evidence that was lent to the production. Um, because he wanted the film to be as accurate as possible, David Fincher did, decided not to depict any of the alleged Zodiac murders for which there were no surviving victims or witnesses. So uh, because of that, uh, the Zodiac's first confirmed attack, the murders on Lake Herman Road, uh, were excluded from the film since there were no surviving victims to corroborate details. So the creators decided to open the film with the 4th of July murders. So there's a lot of trivia related to how they like, oh, he just, so, you know, they shot on location, but uh, that location actually had more trees when um, the murders took place there. So they digitally added more trees, wow. like a lot of really small details like that, just because they were very, and I think because it was based on a book, like a, a nonfiction book, they were very devoted to making the film seem, um, you know, as realistic as possible. So of all of the true crime or uh, sorry, of all the crime horror films out there, all the crime films out there, are films based on a true story. I think this one, you can come away with actual knowledge yeah. about the case and feel like, Hey, I actually know a little bit something about the Zodiac murders now, which is kind of absolutely. Cool. It's very like yeah. meticulous. I feel like, and I, even without knowing that trivia, I, you can tell just watching yeah. the film. And it has uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo in it, which is uh, Mark <laughs> simply Ruffalo. delightful. Mark 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 Buffalo, more like it because he's oh buff. true. Okay, I was like, <laughs> he doesn't look anything like a buffalo, but oh, like a like a like a buffalo wing or like yes. yeah, like buffalo. I didn't realize. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that's an actual thing. A buffalo. Yeah, I still anyway. I still am just in awe of Mark Ruffalo tweeting Ariana Grande that one time and her like. She was like the biggest star in the world, but how excited she was to be tweeted at by Mark Ruffalo. I don't know if you saw that after <laughs> he's a total after babe. she made you, the thank you. Have next. you seen Thirteen Going on Thirty? Oh, trust 30. me, yeah, that movie's fantastic. Uh, but I don't know. That always sticks out to me. <laughs> she was just really. Oh my God, Mark Ruffalo was tweeting me. Is this real? <laughs> <laughs> that would be. I mean, that's all of us. It's very relatable. Of course. Oh God, he's such a babe. Okay. Anyway, we are. As usual, very over time. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just... I'm really glad we got to talk about these two films. I didn't mention this at the top. I hadn't seen Zodiac since it was in theaters. <laughs> I saw it with our grandmother. Were you, like, I was... 14? I was yeah, 14 or 15. Uh, we went to the movies to see something else, and the tickets were sold out. I was like, oh, I like Jake Gyllenhaal. And so we're like, okay, let's go see it. And when we walked... Like, I mean, our grand... It was our grandmother. So, like, we walked out, and afterwards, she was like, okay <laughs> like you know because we had just seen this like kind of messed up movie together but i remember being like wow this is really good but this makes brings me into um a segment that i kind of oh, want to yeah, keep on doing you want you texted me about this earlier this week so the segment is called was it good or was I just 13? Mm -hmm. um, and it's about films that we saw a really long time ago and we remember really liking them, but perhaps we were just <laughs> preteens. So I was like, I mean, I know Zodiac is a good film, but I hadn't seen it in a really long time. So it was really fun to revisit it. And then, of course, Silence of the Lambs. I mean, it's Silence of the Lambs. So I'm really glad we got to do these two films. Yeah, I just want to say, um, so in anticipation of the Dark Crystal series going on Amazon, a few months ago, I watched Dark Crystal for the first time since I was like 12 or 13. Uh, that movie does not hold up, I'm sorry to say. Um, so, uh, But I will say, I believe we're using their song to introduce the segment. System of a Down does hold up. Yeah. I was System I was 13, but it was it's still awesome. Also, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion. 
but I also think that Green Day still holds no, up. I, I think, enjoy still. You know, <laughs> I, I, anything before American Idiot, I agree with. American Idiot is anything after that um, is a little cringy. They also just made a post about their new album about it's like no politics, just balls. And I was like, okay, I, it makes me never want to listen to Green Day ever again. But um, yeah, but if I'm in my field, I really like listening to Boulevard of Broken Dreams. You can't take that away from me. So um, never anyway. mind. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that song, and I don't care who knows it. So, I've had a lot of pumpkin beers. Clearly, um, let's just move into just our. Imagine you last... driving like to your like on a work trip, just screaming. I want I, this is, road. This is so. I mean, this is so embarrassing, oh, but I'm gonna wait. go ahead and say it anyway. We were like on a road trip once, and I was 12. I think I was like 12 when American Idiot came out, so it was like on the radio and stuff. And the Boulevard of Virgins <laughs> came on the radio, and I distinctly remember leaning my head against the car window and looking morosely out the window, being like, "Life is so tough." <laughs> <laughs> I like really related to that song. Oh my god, oh my god. that's so beautiful. <laughs> so embarrassing um anyway let's move into our last segment before i embarrass myself some more mm-hmm. curtis what have you been watching? well we're running a little long so i'll just mention one film that i know you watched last night as well but uh tigers are not afraid uh which is a highly acclaimed film out of mexico um that just got released on shutter uh just last week as we're recording this um it should i mean it's on shutter right now but it is a film very very reminiscent of uh early earlier guillermo del toro especially uh, the Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, which I guess Pan's Labyrinth isn't that early, but um, it's a film about um, five orphan children in uh, I, I, in, Mex- in a Mexican town that's essentially a ghost town due to uh, drug cartel activity. I'm not too familiar uh, with that. There's a little uh, like information that pops up on the screen, basically saying you know because of drug cartel activity in Mexico, sometimes it become ghost towns. I don't know if this is supposed to depict. A town like like a border town like Juarez or something, or if or if there are more towns like this, I'm just not aware of. But I do know, um, you know, there's these five orphan children who are orphaned essentially because the drug cartels have kidnapped their parents or killed their parents for human trafficking, um, and it centers around a uh, mer- main character. I believe I don't have notes on it, but I believe her name is uh, Estrella, if I'm not mistaken. Estrella, yeah. I remember because that means star in oh. Spanish. That's beautiful. Yeah. But the, the main yeah. character of the film is Estrella, and she comes home one day, and her mother has been kidnapped. So she um, kind of reaches out to these orphan boys because she's hungry and, you know, kind of wants companionship and, you know, have someone to be around. Um, but she uh, has been given, or she believes that she has been given three wishes by her teacher, and her first wish is to have her mother back. So um, her mother begins kind of following her as a ghost. Um, and you know basically the plot involves you know this drug cartel and one of the members of the drug cartel is running for a political position and um you know there's you know obviously some involvement in the pain that these children have suffered and you know the drug cartel so that's kind of the main crux of the story um like uh guillermo del toro and a lot of other spanish films like the orphanage comes to mind the ghosts are like the good ghosts where, I mean, they're very, they're scary. They bring, there's a lot of that horror to this film, but compared to the horror of the drug cartel that you get in the film, it's, you know, the ghosts are good and you are much more scared of the drug cartel than you are of the ghosts. But, you know, this movie is just really, really touching uh, the relationship between the kids. And it's really, 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 
really, really sad because it's involving. I cannot stress enough how it's, sad this. I mean, film if you is. thought I cried, I cried. If you thought the Devil's the Backbone or the Orphanage was sad, you just have not seen anything yet. <laughs> My only criticism of the film is it is a little melodramatic, um, and yeah. for the the. I've heard some, I do not agree with this. Let me just be clear. I've heard some say it's a little exploitative because of what occurs in this film. I think, you know, I think exploitative would be a, like, would necessarily have to be a reflection of something that does not exist. Things that happen in this film do happen in real life, um, and we are just confronting it. I do think it's just a little, little tad bit too melodramatic uh, for me because I felt like I would be crying and I would be like, you know, I would be like on the verge of tears watching this film and then be like okay this is a little cheesy at some parts yeah. just some parts I, that there's that maybe like two or three times I felt in the that, film I felt that once at the very end I was like wow what a beautiful ending and then it kind of kept on going for like 30 yeah, more yeah. seconds and I was like mm, it would have been good without that 30 seconds but I also I, I didn't know if you were going to mention this but the child actors are oh, they're, amazing they're so cute it's, too they're such oh my god they're so cute, cute. Kids. the little girl who plays Estrella is like one of the cutest kids I think I've ever seen and in my life and the kid who um, plays the youngest yeah. kid in their little crew oh he's my god. so cute with his little stuffed tiger yes. he's so cute yeah, yeah. I mean I really, really, really like this film. I, I mean, I, I can't stress enough. It was one of those things where I always have grand designs that I'm like, okay, I'll watch 30 minutes of this film tonight and then I'll finish it tomorrow. This one, I like couldn't put it down. I stayed up like late watching it because I was like, there's no way, you know, I have to, I have to see what happens. And it had, it kind of had a little bit of everything. It was like, it was sad. It was like kind of like a fairy tale. There was fantastical elements. It was scary and suspenseful, had good acting. I mean, I highly recommend people see it. I honestly think that it's worth like paying $5 a month to Shutter just so you can see yeah, this. So. Yeah. Um, and you could probably get a free. I mean, there's a million podcasts and shows out there that are giving away like 14 day like codes i'm sure you can find those online but hashtag uh sponsor us shutter mm, then, then maybe we one day out, uh, we will have a code. It, our real films 69 or something <laughs> um, <laughs> um but um I, you can also um on shutter sorry were you gonna say no, something no, 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 else go i was it. gonna transition okay uh if you get a shutter sub- subscription you can also watch a short film that i watched on shutter um called the quiet room have you heard of this i have not Okay, I was like browsing Shutter one night. I don't know why I was in my feels. Feels maybe I had listened to Boulevard of Broken Dreams or something. <laughs> one too ma- but, like... Or September by Green Day. <laughs> yeah. Or wait, God, wake uh... me up when September ends. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I mean it was September when I watched this, so <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but it's called The Quiet Room. It's a short film. Um, it has a very strong LGBTQ element, which was really cool. Um, I don't remember how I even found it, but it's basically about this guy um he tries to die by suicide and he's put like in a mental ward and um there is a um there's like a uh like a ghost story in the mental ward that um there's like this entity that comes to try to get you if you're in the quiet room and like so don't be sent to the quiet room um and basically it's kind of your classic like take on like mental health is like you know, the struggles with mental health is like, you know, horror kind of element. Um, but I just thought it had kind of a few unique touches to it. And I, it felt like, and I'm not saying this as an, as an insult, it felt like a student film. Like it felt very like raw and very, just like very personal. Like it felt like 
I was like, do I know these people? You know, it, it kind of felt like very like familiar like that. And so um, I thought it was really good. It was only like 25 minutes long. So um, if you have a Shutter subscription, I would definitely check it out. The Quiet Room. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really want to focus on, folks, I listen, I br- only bring you the freshest coverage on the show. Ooh. I think you know that um, I have about five minutes, I think, left. And I want to spend all five of those minutes dedicated to the 1972 eco horror film Frogs, which I promised you I would watch on our last I episode. It was and- so quick. Such a quick. We recorded the last episode like <laughs> literally a week ago and you've already watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I would watch Frogs and it's the same thing as like when I told mom I was going to be a vegetarian when I'm when I was 13 and I'm still a vegetarian now. Like Very when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So I watched Frogs and Curtis doesn't believe me, but I actually enjoyed Frogs. Um, I thought it was really like I thought it was an entertaining film. Like so it's about like it's this guy. OK, it's a guy. He's played by Sam Elliott. I was like, who's Sam Elliott? So I Googled him. It is New Ron from Parks and Rec. So if you're a Parks and Rec fan, this is New Ron's like second film role ever well, I mean, in he's also in The Big Lebowski and uh, other films. You know, Star is Born. New Ron. Yes. Uh, new Ron. Sorry. New Ron. Uh, sorry. It's New Ron. I don't know why you're trying to. I mean, it's New Ron. Um, and so he like he played. He's like a wildlife photographer. So he's like very in touch with nature and stuff. That's why I'm saying it's new Ron, you know, this is like basically his character, but like 40 years before. Um, and he kind of uh, like stumbles upon this really rich family and they are celebrating their patriarch's birthday, which also happens to fall on the 4th of July. And all of the people there are like these frogs. They're so loud. They're keeping me up all night. And throughout the film, <laughs> people start dying. Like, in very strange and wonderful ways. This is like the most Florida film I've ever seen. One da- guy dies because he is strangled by Spanish moss and then stabbed by tarantulas. I was like, that seems realistic. Um, uh, this other lady is like attacked by a bunch of snakes. It really feels like I was like, is that is that is that Mayaka? Like that looks really familiar. Um, is that where I saw so- the boar? Um, And then about a third of the movie is just close-up shots of frogs, like, croaking menacingly. (laughs) So, I mean, it's it's kind of a silly film. It's it's definitely a B-movie, but I will say it is definitely better than I was expecting. And it's kind of one of those films that, for me, is kind of fun to have in your back pocket as, like, just this random, like, weird film that you saw. I feel like everyone has, like, their weird film that they're like, yeah, it was pretty good. And, like, if someone is, like, I feel like I've seen every single horror movie. Like, what do you got for me? I'm going to be like, have you seen Frogs from 1972? And then about an hour and a half later, they'll be unfriending you on every social media. They have. <laughs> Look, I spend, we already spend as humans a third of our life sleeping. I'm not going to spend another hour and a half of my life watching Frogs. That's just kind of how I but feel could about you it. Spend, but could you spend a third of your movie watching time watching Frogs croak menacingly? I no. mean, no, I could. I see that in real life. I don't need. That. I don't need that in <sighs> fake life. Okay, well, whatever. I, I also like. I feel like I was kind of prejudiced because, like, I love frogs, mm, so I, I, I was like, "There's I like no way." Toads. I'm a more of a toad guy. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I. That's what I've been up to lately. I am getting into Halloween mode. Mm-hmm. I'm making my game plan. I'm gonna finish Nightmare on Elm Street, and then I'm gonna try to watch. Um, saw movies but i also want to revisit some halloween classics and 
we need to discuss kind of what our Halloween episode is going to be this year. So I think everyone should look forward to that. Um, I also, there's not a big fanfare about this, but I think our podcast is already a year old. So happy birthday to mm-hmm. us. Uh, we might do something on our next episode. Maybe we'll episode. pop some champagne. Um, yeah, pop some champagne on our, because it'll be like for our next episode. Also, we'll be like also, a year. Um, I don't know if you were going to mention this or not, but last week we had 69 listeners, which is uh, nice. I just want to point that out. We're doing very well for ourselves. Thanks, everybody who listened to us. All 69 of you. <laughs> wow, that's that's a tough look for us. Um, I like to pretend that we have a lot more listeners than that, but that's fine. I meant to say 6,900. Um, Excuse me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, we have uh, lots of stuff coming up. And thank you to all 69 of our listeners for sticking with us <laughs> as we watch Frogs and make really bad jokes about Green Day. We really appreciate it. Um, if you could follow us on social media, that would be great. We are AHH Real Films on Instagram and AHHREEL Films on Twitter. You can also email us, films at gmail.com. If you have any feedback about today's episode, ideas for future episodes, whether or not Curtis should watch Frogs, anything that you want to talk about, if someone, we want if, to hear if it. If three people email us saying, they can email us about anything, but if the end of the email says, Curtis, you have to watch Frogs, if we get three of those emails, I will watch Frogs. So that gives a little bit of an enticement. Please, everyone, please email us. I beg of you. Can you imagine? We never get any we emails, three but what if people add that all just said, please watch Frogs? <laughs> that would be amazing. I really hope that happens. But um, yeah, and then please also, if you haven't already, um, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. It helps other people find us, especially as we're coming up on our one year. We're trying to really ramp things up around here in uh ah, real films land make sure everyone gets more of our sweet sweet tent mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and yeah thank you so much everyone for listening and bye 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 yeah, yeah, I just thought of something really stupid that I like dialogue wise. I like when uh, Clarice says the word doctor. Do you know what I'm talking When she just is like, yeah. you know, you said doctor. doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she calls him doctor instead of like yeah. Hannibal or Mr. Lecter. Yeah. It's doctor. You know, you said doctor. <laughs>